Section thirty one of Pantrothian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pantrothian by Alexis Sawyer. Repasts. Mortals were formerly remarkably sober, and the gods themselves set them the example by feeding exclusively on ambrosia and nectar. The most illustrious warriors in the Homeric ages were generally contented with a piece of roast beef. For a festival or a wedding dinner, the frugal fare was a piece of roast beef, and the king of kings, the pompous Agamemnon, offered no greater rarity to the august chiefs of Greece assembled round his hospitable table. It is true that the guest to be most honoured received for his own share an entire fillet of beef. The vigorous but uncultivated appetites of these heroes were hardly satisfied when everything disappeared, and none of them thought to prolong the pleasures of good cheer. Happy times of ingenious and ignorant frugality. What has become of you? It must not, however, be imagined that they were entirely destitute of more refined elements. Homer gives to the Hellespont the epithet of fishy. Ithaca and several other islands of Greece abounded in excellent game but the magiric genius was asleep. It awoke at a later period. Beware, however, of a mistake. Those men, with so little choice respecting their viands, all possess stomachs of astounding capacity. Theagenes, an athlete of Thassos, ate a whole bull. Milo of Crotona did the same thing, at least once. Titormus had an ox served for supper, and when he rose from table, they say not a morsel remained. Astydamus of Miletus, invited to supper by the Persian Ariobarzanes, devoured a feast prepared for nine persons. Cambus, king of Lydia, had such an unfortunate appetite that one night the glutton devoured his wife. Thice, king of the Pathlagonians, was afflicted with voracity nearly similar. The Persian, Cantibaris, ate so much and so long that his jaws were at last tired, and then attentive servants used to press the food into his mouth. These are the facts of which we do not exactly guarantee the truth, for history, it is no secret, has some little resemblance to the microscope. It frequently magnifies objects by presenting them to us through its deceitful prism. We close this singularly incomplete list of the ancient polyphagists by adding that the Pharsalians and the Thessalians were redoubtable eaters, and that the Egyptians consumed a prodigious quantity of bread. In more modern times, some men have acquired, by the energy of their hunger, 
an illustration they would have vainly demanded from their genius or their virtues the emperor claudius sat down to table at all hours and in any place one day when he was dispensing justice according to his own fashion in the market-place of augustus his olfactory nerves scented the delicious odour of a feast which exhaled from one of the neighbouring temples it was the priests of mars who were merry-making at the expense of the good souls in the surrounding locality the glutton emperor immediately left his judgment seat and without any further ceremony went and asked them for a knife and fork never no never adds the biographer of this prince did he leave a repast until he was distended with food and soaked with drink and then only to sleep yes the ignoble caesar slept but still the peacock's feather an unseemly invention of roman turpitude was called into requisition to prepare the monarch for new excesses galba could taste nothing if he was not served with inconceivable profusion his stomach imposed limits upon him but his eyes knew none and when he had gloated to his heart's content upon the magnificent spectacle of innumerable viands for which the universe had been ransacked he would have the imperial dessert taken slowly round the table and then heaped up to a prodigious height before the astonished guests vitellius the boldest liver perhaps of the whole imperial crew and the most active polyphagist of past times caused himself to be invited the same day to several senatorial families this deplorable honour often caused their ruin for each repast cost not less than four hundred thousand sesterces or three thousand two hundred pounds the intrepid vitellius was equal to the whole thanks to the peacock's feather which doubtless was cursed more than once by the unfortunate victims of his dreadful gluttony true this poor prince was continually tormented with a hunger that no element seemed capable of satisfying in the sacrifices like the harpies of whom virgil speaks he took the half-roasted viands from the altars and disputed the sacred cakes with the gods as he passed through the streets he seized the smoking hot food spread out before the shops and public houses he did not even disdain the disgusting scraps that a miserable plebeian had gnawed the evening before and which a hunger-stricken slave would have hardly contested with him such were the masters of the world the proud caesars before whom haughty rome bowed the head and trembled and from whom it basely implored a smile up to that day when some soldiers tired of their shameful obedience kicked the imperial corpse into the tiber after having mutilated it in presence of the populace who crowded joyously around the gemonii these terrific examples of insatiable veracity have become rare and obscure 
a few isolated facts may perhaps be met with at very distant periods which remind us of the polyphagic celebrities of greece and italy there are however two which would have merited the attention of vitellius himself the ingenious fuller speaks of a man named nicholas wood to whom the county of kent proudly claims the honour of having given birth who once ate a whole sheep at one meal one day three dozen of pigeons were placed before him of which he left only the bones another day being at lord wootton's and having a good appetite he devoured eighty-four rabbits and eighteen yards of black pudding for his breakfast we leave to fuller the responsibility of the figures anyhow the brave nicholas wood must have been a vigorous trencherman the second anecdote is from Bershu. marshal villers had a house porter who was an enormous eater franz said he one day tell me now how many loins could you eat ah my lord as for loins not many five or six at most and how many legs of mutton ah as for legs of mutton not many seven or eight perhaps and fatted pullets ah as for pullets my lord not many not more than a dozen and pigeons ah as for pigeons not many perhaps forty fifty at most according to the appetite and larks ah as for that my lord little larks for ever my lord for ever a truce to gluttons let us speak of epicureans it is to them that gastronomic civilization owes the laws by which it is regulated they were the legislators of the table they introduced regularity and order at repasts the breakfast dinner collation and supper were created by those sages fashion has often modified the nomenclature but assuredly it will never be able to supersede it the greeks submitted to it for many years and then that fickle people whom everything wearied declined the drudgery of masticating so frequently the lower orders and the army ate twice a day the fashionable people contented themselves with one repast which some had served at midday but the greater part just before sunset the party of resistance had as yet yielded only on one point the collation and they continued bravely to breakfast dine and sup but the monophagists were not sparing in their jokes and the new fashion triumphed at last over the prescription of ancient usages pagan sobriety was doubtless far from suspecting that the book of ecclesiastes in accordance with it on this subject pronounces an anathema against the kingdom whose princes eat in the morning the greek manners were introduced in rome and persons of a certain rank who did not make a profession of gluttony 
gave themselves up to the pleasures of the table only once a day. The tyranny of fashion was not, however, such that all persons thought themselves bound to obey it under pain of being shamed and ridiculed. Many unscrupulously transgressed its laws, and more than one respectable Greek of good family, following the example of Ulysses, who prepared his breakfast at sunrise, had the acratism brought so soon as the crowing of the cock announced the return of day. This frugal breakfast was composed of bread steeped in pure wine. The adults restricted themselves to this slight repast, but the children received more substantial nourishment. The Romans, when they were not asleep, breakfasted at three or four o'clock in the morning. A little bread and cheese or dried fruits enabled them to wait for the solemn hour of the banquets. It would appear that the Jews dined at midday. It was the hour at which St. Peter was hungry. This repast took place also among the Greeks about the middle of the day, if we are to believe Athenaeus. However, Cicero relates that the philosopher Plato appeared to be very much astonished when travelling in Italy to see the inhabitants eat twice every day. It will only be necessary to repeat that the supper alone formed the rule, and that the breakfast and dinner were exceptions. They depended entirely upon the casualties of will. About midday, the sober Romans had a slight collation. Seneca, who never loses sight of himself in his fastidious treatises on wisdom, informs us that a little bread and a few figs were all that his virtue required. The senators, the knights, and the luxurious freedmen spared no expense either for dinner or supper. The priests of Mars, of whom we have already spoken, set them an example too seductive for them not to follow it. It is to be remarked, by the way, that those worthy ministers of the god of war took this repast in the most secret part of their temple, where they hardly allowed anyone to come and interrupt them. This gastronomic quietude was also very much the taste of a celebrated modern sailor, the bailiff de Suffren. He was at dinner in Acom, India, when a deputation from the town was announced. Being a witty glutton, he conceived the happy thought of sending word to the importunate troop that an article of the Christian religion expressly prohibited every Christian from occupying himself with anything besides eating, that function being of the most serious importance. This reply singularly edified the deputation, who retired with respect, admiring the extreme devotion of the French general. The collation, merenda, was little in use. It took place about the end of the day, before supper, particularly in summer, among the workmen and farm labourers. We now come to the principal repast, to that which threw such brilliancy over the latter centuries of Rome, 
when a culinary monomania a sort of gastronomic furore seems to have seized the sovereign people who no longer great by their conquests betrayed a desire to become so by the number and audacity of their follies the hebrews supped at the ninth hour that is to say about three o'clock in the afternoon their custom of two repasts would be sufficiently proved by the fact that on fast days they took food only in the evening hence when they did not fast they also ate at another hour their ordinary aliment was very simple we shall have to speak of it hereafter in the primitive times kings prepared their own suppers beef mutton goat's flesh such were the viands which then satisfied the daintiest palates baskets filled with pure wheaten bread were carried round to the guests and heaps of salt placed on the table gave proof of the hospitality of those simple and unsophisticated ages the fierce warriors of that warlike period never forgot to invoke the gods before they satisfied their appetites libations of wine rendered them favourable this pious duty once fulfilled they gave themselves up without restraint to the joys of good cheer and the sounds of the lyre and the buffooneries of mountebanks enlivened the banquet which again received fresh animation from the copious healths which persons the least burst in the forms of society never forgot it often happened that each one paid his share or brought provisions with him to these joyous suppers of which the last rays of the setting sun always gave the periodical signal the uncertainty of these amicable meetings constituted their charm picnics as we see may be traced rather far back it was then that pleasure presided at those repasts dullness had its turn when luxury proscribed the supper in open air and in common after the manner of the jews who assembled in gardens or under trees and mingled the sweet harmony of music with the less delicate seductions of their banquets the breakfast has always taken place after rising dinner in the middle of the day the collation in the course of the afternoon and the supper in the evening in the fourteenth century people dined at ten o'clock in the morning one or two centuries later they dined at eleven o'clock in the sixteenth century and at the commencement of the seventeenth they dined at midday in the best houses louis the fourteenth himself always sat down to table at that hour this order was not modified until the eighteenth century the sicilian cooks taught unheard-of refinements and were sought after with strange eagerness the chine of beef and haunch of mutton of the homeric epoch gave way to sumptuous banquets and a learned prodigality divided them into two or three acts or courses the order and luxurious majesty of which have been adopted in modern times 
it appears that three or four o'clock in the afternoon the ninth hour was the time invariably fixed for the supper of the romans like the greeks of yore they contented themselves at first with simple aliments and few in number subsequently three courses sometimes seven or even more appeared to them to be hardly sufficient to satisfy the ardent voracity of their eyes and glut stomachs which odious precautions assimilated to the buckets of danaeus's daughters these suppers the details of which always appear to us bearing the impress of exaggeration notwithstanding the authority of the writers who furnished them were insufficient for certain prodigies of extravagance and furious gluttony who were served at midnight with a sort of wake commissatio at which some of them gave proof of renewed greed and vigour vitellius was renowned for this kind of nocturnal debauchery others shone in the second rank but no one equalled that monarch cook who made the empire a market and his shameful reign an unceasing banquet sensual enjoyments and every variety of barbarity that follows in their train were carried to the highest pitch there was something vast and monstrous of which nothing can give us an idea in the eclipse of mind and the depravity of their hearts all that force of intelligence and will which under the influence of christian spiritualism has revealed itself in modern times by so many chivalric inspirations so many moral institutions so many scientific discoveries so many industrial works then engulfed in the censors was taxed solely for their gratification the sensual organization of man had acquired a development apparently as vast as that of intelligence because intelligence had become the handmaid of the senses hence those colossal proportions in the tastes the banquets the pleasures of the ancients when compared with ours which make us regard them as an extinct race of giants if we consider them in a sensual point of view and as a race of pygmies if we measure them by that power of ideas that metaphysical and moral elevation to which we have attained and which would make a child of our days the catechist of all the philosophers of antiquity down to the time of the conquest of the north of europe by the romans the food was very simple chopped herbs boiled in cauldrons served in wooden bowls on the hide of an ox spread on the ground in the midst of the forest balls composed of different kinds of flour and some strips of meat grilled on the embers such was the food of our forefathers the table at which the anglo-saxons took their repasts was covered with a very clean cloth each one received a horn cup which contained some kind of pottage or ale the beverage for which they had a predilection the plates with which strutt has enriched his work give a satisfactory idea of the culinary intelligence of the nation they had spits knives plates and dishes in abundance 
England was marching with giant strides towards civilization. The Anglo-Saxons were particularly fond of boiled meat. They cut up the animal they intended to cook, put the pieces into a cauldron supported by a tripod, and then lighted a fire on the ground. They stirred their ragout incessantly with a long two-pronged fork, which also served them to take out the meat when it was done. All the deplorable excesses of the Romans ought not to divert us from the fact that religion and sound policy seem to have consecrated repasts in common as one of the means best calculated to unite men more closely in the bonds of concord and friendship. The scriptures furnish us with the first examples. Among the Israelites, the banquets which followed the sacrifices always took place in an assembly of relations, neighbours or friends. They eat together and in public, on wedding days and solemn festivals. The first Christians promptly adopted this custom. Their love feasts, their agape, were served in the church after the communion. The rich contributed to them abundantly, the poor according to their means, and the indigent who presented themselves with nothing in their hands were received and treated as brethren. Admirable association of penury and opulence, which will never be replaced by the crude utopias of modern philanthropy. As an act of justice to pagan legislators, we are compelled to say that sometimes they had excellent views, which go far to extenuate many of their aberrations. The laws of Minos prescribed to the Cretans the annual levy of an impost, the half of which was to be consecrated to the nourishment of the people. No one could eat alone. A certain number of families met together to take their repasts in common. At Lacedaemon, each one brought his share of the provisions necessary for the supper of the whole. Or he sent, at the commencement of the month, to the steward of the common halls, wine, cheese, figs, a measure of flour, and a small sum of money to defray other expenses. Friendship, sobriety, and concord presided, without exception, at these meetings. Solon decreed that the Athenians should assemble at the Prytonea to eat together, sometimes one, sometimes another, at the public expense. Each was invited in his turn, and was expected to be there on the day named. The Prytonea of Athens, Megara, Olympia, and Syzica contained a great number of porticoes, under which were the tables at which the citizens sat. The founder of Rome also had the wisdom to ordain that, in certain cases, the inhabitants of the same ward should take their repasts in common as a sign of peace and good feeling. Nay, more, he decreed these suppers to be a part of the religious worship, and they were called sacred banquets. Man abuses everything. 
the romans tired of eating merely to support life and disdaining little by little that austere sobriety which rendered them the masters of the world gave themselves up at last to unbridled luxury which appears to have redoubled during the war of italy and the civil wars of marius in eighty three b c cornelius Scylla assumed the government and one of the terrible dictator's laws lex cornelia renewed the ancient sumptuary regulations and fixed the prices of provisions julius caesar also made great efforts to oppose the redoubtable invasions of roman gastronomy that prince stationed guards in the markets with orders to seize whatever they found there in contravention of the laws if through want of vigilance or fidelity they allowed anything to escape it was sure to be confiscated by more active agents on the very tables and in presence of the assembled guests resistance only increased the evil augustus thought to render the laws more efficacious by modifying them he permitted twelve persons to meet in honour of the twelve great gods and to spend eight shillings in ordinary repasts twelve shillings in the banquets of the calends the ides and the nones and even two pounds on wedding days and the day following tiberius granted still more under his reign a worthy citizen might spend for supper the sum of four pounds without having to fear that any one would find fault with it caligula claudius and nero doubtless better judges of liberty than their predecessors allowed every one the right to ruin himself as joyously as he pleased these good princes so far from repressing the luxury of the table strove to fortify it with the authority of their examples vitellius was by nature a non-reformer that voracious caesar operated on a large scale he spent in four months for his suppers a little more than five million sterling a trifle for a roman emperor did not the riches and labour of europe asia and africa form his civil list it is quite true that out of this modest revenue he had to find corn to stop the cravings of the proletarians and provide the games of the circus in order to amuse them in their dangerous idleness but vitellius who had no other passion than that of good cheer was royally equal to the task and these things cause no surprise when we remember that a roman general lucullus spent not less than one thousand pounds to offer a little collation to two of his friends who refused him the time he required to treat them in a less unceremonious manner we find in the history of jack of newbury instructions relative to the manner in which an english tradesman was to feed the persons in his employment in the sixteenth century which would certainly not be very pleasing now to that useful and laborious class you feed your folks with the best of beef and the finest of wheat which is an oversight neither do i hear of any knight in this country that doth it 
and, to say the truth, how were they able to bear that part which they do, if they saved it not by some means? Come thither, and I warrant you that you shall see brown bread upon the board. If it be of wheat and rye mingled together, it is a great matter, and bread most highly commended, but most commonly they eat barley bread, or rye mingled with peason, or such like coarse grain, which is doubtless of small price, and there is no other bread allowed, except it be at their own board, and in like manner for their meat, it is well known that necks and points of beef is their ordinary fare, which, because it is commonly lean, they seeth therewith now and then a piece of bacon or pork, whereby they make their pottage fat, and therewith drive out the rest with more content. And this you must do. And besides that, the midriffs of oxen, and the cheeks, the sheep's head, and the gathers, which you give away at your gate, might serve them well enough. This would be a great sparing to your meat, and by this means you would save much money in the year, whereby you might better maintain your French hood and silk gown. The following is the style of living at the court of the Dauphin of France in the 14th century. As in all well-regulated houses, there were five repasts, namely, the morning, except on fast days, the breakfast, the repast of ten o'clock, desserts, or decimer, by abbreviation decima, and by a second abbreviation dinner, the dinner, the second dinner, the supper, or super, at which they eat no more soup than we do, and lastly, the night repast, which they called a collation. As an everyday fare, the Dauphin took for his dinner a rice pottage with leeks or cabbage, a piece of beef, another of salt pork, a dish of six hens or twelve pullets, divided in two, a piece of roast pork, cheese and fruit. At supper, a piece of roast beef, a dish of brains, neat's feet with vinegar, cheese and fruit. Other days, other dishes, which were also prearranged with respect to kind and quantity. The barons of the court had always the half of the quantity of the Dauphin, the knights the quarter, the equerries and chaplains the eighth. The distributions of wine and bread were made in the same proportions. Such a rank, such weight, such measure, so that the young and delicate baroness had four pots of wine, while the chorister and the chaplain had but one. We are indebted to the learned Montiel for the following details relative to the public repast of Louis the Fourteenth. The usher of the court, at the hour named, goes and knocks with his wand at the door of the hall of the bodyguard, and says, Gentlemen, to the king's table. A guard is dispatched, who follow him to the goblet, where one of the officers, for the service of the table, takes the knave. The guard accompany him, marching by his side, sword in hand. Having arrived at the dining room, the officers spread the cloth, 
try the napkins the fork the spoon the knife and the toothpicks that is to say they touch them with a morsel of bread which they afterwards eat the usher returns again to the hall of the bodyguard knocks at the door with his wand and cries gentlemen the king's meat four guards then follow him to the ambry where the equerry of the household and the chief steward or major-domo test the dishes by dipping a piece of bread which they eat after this the king's meat is carried the guards marching with their drawn swords on either side the chief steward preceded by the usher walking in front when he arrives near the table he approaches the knave and makes his obeisance to it and if the announcer or any other person desire also to do it he may the gentlemen in waiting place the dishes successively and the table being covered with them the king then enters it is to be remarked that it is always a prince or a great personage who presents the wet napkin to him with which to wash his hands whereas it is a simple valet who presents him with a dry napkin to wipe them the king takes his seat the equerry carver carves the viands the king serves himself on a plate of gold when he asks for a drink the cupbearer calls aloud drink for the king at the same time he makes his obeisance to him goes to the buffet takes two crystal decanters one of which is filled with wine and the other with water returns to the king makes another obeisance removes the cover of the glass and presents it to the king who pours out wine and water according to his own pleasure during the dinner or supper of the king a group of lordly courtiers stand behind his chair and endeavour though frequently in vain to divert him and make him laugh and another group composed of ladies of the court stand behind the queen's chair who on their part try to amuse her and excite a smile whether the king ate in public or private the table is always served in the same manner at dinner two large tureens of soup two middling sized ones two small ones as side dishes first course two large dishes two middling sized ones six small ones as side dishes second course two large dishes of roast two more as side dishes at supper the same number of dishes only there is but three-fourths of the quantity of soup the king eats only with the royal family and princes of the blood sometimes however the pope's nuncio has the honour of sitting at his table but always at the distance of four places the luxury of the table was carried so far under edward the third of england that the prince was constrained in the seventeenth year of his reign to impose sumptuary laws on his subjects forbidding the common people the indulgence of costly food and fine wines the necessity for this measure is demonstrated by the fact 
of which we read in the chronicles of stowe that at the marriage of lionel duke of clarence the third son of edward the third with violentus the daughter of galesius the second duke of milan there was a rich feast in which above thirty courses were served at the table and the fragments that remained were more than sufficient to have served a thousand people the same chronicler also informs us that king richard the second held the christmas feasts in the great hall of westminster in thirteen ninety nine and such numbers came that every day there were slain twenty-six or twenty-eight oxen and three hundred sheep besides fowls without number richard neville earl of warwick kept so good a table that his guests often ate six fat oxen for their breakfast in number of dishes and change of meat says hollinshead the nobility of england do most exceed sith there is no day in manner that passeth over their heads wherein they have not only beef mutton veal lamb kid pork coney capon pig or so many of these as the season yieldeth but also some portion of the red or fallow deer beside great variety of fish and wild fowl and thereto sundry other delicates wherein the sweet hand of the portingale is not wanting so early as the sixteenth century the inhabitants of the city of london were remarkable for the astonishing profusion of their repasts if we are to believe the poet messenger men may talk of country christmas and court gluttony their thirty pounds for buttered eggs their pies of carp's tongues their pheasants drenched with amber grease the carcasses of three fat weathers bruised for gravy to make sauce for a single peacock yet their feasts were farce compared with the cities the description of one dish will enable us to judge of the others three sucking pigs served up in a dish took from the sow as soon as she had farrowed a fortnight fed with dates and muscadine that stood my master in twenty marks apiece besides the puddings in their bellies made of i know not what hang thyself voluptuous apicius thou hast never dreamed of such delicate fare in the comedy of the parson's wedding the captain orders for his supper chines fried and the salmon carved a carp and black sauce red deer in the blood and an assembly of woodcocks and jacksnipes so fat you would think that they had their winding-sheets on and upon these as their pages let me have weight your sussex wheat ear with a feather in his cap over all which let our countrymen general chine of beef command i hate your french pottage that looks as if the cookmaid had more hand in it than the cook the luxurious munificence of norman kings is almost as remarkable as that of the emperors of degenerate rome william the conqueror had himself crowned three times in the same year and the banquets he gave on those occasions were such that they impoverished the kingdom at the dinner given on the marriage of richard earl of cornwall and brother of henry the third with the daughter of raymond earl of provence 
more than thirty thousand dishes were served on the table of the bride and bridegroom in the year twelve fifty two john mansell the king's counsellor gave a stately dinner to the kings of england and scotland and their queens there was also present edward the king's son the bishop of london and many earls barons knights and citizens in short so large was his company that his house at tothill could not contain them therefore he set up tents and pavilions for their reception seven hundred messes of meat was not sufficient to serve them for the first course the following details which we borrow from monteil's excellent work give us some idea of the style of living in the mansions of france during the fourteenth century whenever there is a dinner of ceremony the clerks of the church are requested to bring holy water the repast is commenced and concluded with fruit the bread eaten is in loaves of nine ounces only every basin of meat is surrounded with sage lavender or other aromatic herbs and on sunday or any holiday negus is given the sideboard or buffet is always in the middle of the room covered with jugs and large drinking cups of gold and silver the cellars storerooms kneading troughs dairies and fruit stores are filled and emptied unceasingly take who will when he will and as much as he will provisions of every kind are heaped up with a profusion that announces magnificence allied with riches the great number of nobles knights huntsmen falconers pages kitchen servants butlers bakers the numerous valets workmen gardeners harbingers doorkeepers porters and guards are not equal to the task of consuming so much from all sides come relations allies neighbours friends pilgrims and travellers all of whom remain or depart at will being feasted as if it were the morrow of a wedding or a patronal festivity the kitchen chimney places are not less than twelve feet in width one man would not have strength sufficient to use the tongs or the shovels the andirons do not weigh less than a hundred pounds the trivets forty pounds copper saucepans of thirty pounds are common and so are spits of eleven and twelve pounds one roast is composed of one two or three calves two three or four sheep besides game venison and poultry the boiling of the saucepans the exhalations from the grease render the atmosphere so fat so thick that it is only necessary to breathe in it to feed a person would not dare enter one of those kitchens on the eve of a feast day for fear as it were of breaking his fast in the sixteenth century persons washed their hands at the commencement of a repast and a second time when it was concluded when the master of the house was particular on the point of civility he had a basin sent round at this second ablution filled with perfumed water when the person seated in the chief place was a guest of distinction politeness made it indispensable to present him with water to rinse his mouth 
one of the most difficult points of french civility in the sixteenth century was to drink to a person's health or return the compliment in a proper manner a guest at one end of the table held up his glass and called out mr such a one to your health he replied i love it from you during the whole of the repast healths were bandied to and fro in every sense at the end they touched glasses together at a central point which created a very singular kind of clash and at the same time the arms underneath formed a sort of facies of sleeves and cuffs End of section thirty one